Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder. I am one of your co-hosts of this fantastic show where we get to explore the transformations of human, social, and digital, and how that really comes into play in a post-pandemic world, in a current, current pandemic world as well. And just what are the conversations that are unearthing? What are the dialogues that we need to be having out in the world, in our neighborhoods, uh, in our communities, in our businesses, in our politics, in our medicine, all the different areas that we care about as, as human beings with the environment. Uh, that's really what this show is about. As a nonprofit, we're trying to really get these important conversations out there to help influence the influencers, to influence you, the audience, to help take action and to help uh, continue these dialogues wherever you are in the world. So welcome to our show. I am the host of uh, the show as well as um, the author of Decisive Intuition, the CEO of Invisible Edge, and I'm also honored to introduce my co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Good afternoon, Rick. Uh, thank you very much for the fantastic intro. Yet again, a fantastic guest and um, an inspiring conversation awaits us. I'm the co-host of the show, as you all know, and also the co-founder of Growth Enabler, an AI venture that I started a few years ago to disrupt the research industry. Today is a very special day because it's about courage, courage that you have to find somehow to have difficult conversations during this um, challenging time. And no, there's no better person that I know in the executive space, certainly in the last few years who I've met, who I think is extremely well-rounded, both a master of taking action and doing, but also um, stepping back for a while and trying to reflect on what the future um, it has has for us and a great family man too and Suresh um, you know Rick you can introduce him formally I met with him two years ago and through an, a mutual friend and I was inspired when I had a conversation with him his direct style his no-nonsense way of explaining things and of course the fact that he's been on a journey that has uh, almost made him fearless to some extent to have courageous conversations that have made him execute on many difficult parts of, of business and life and which has got him to this point in his career. So absolutely honored to have uh, him on the show, but you must give him a, a fair introduction and then we'll crack on and, and get into the meat of the conversation. You know, to be totally straight talking with you, I think that was an incredible introduction right there. <laughs> <laughs> and so actually, Suresh, let's hand it right over to you. And for those in our audience who might not know who you are yet, um, I know some of them do for sure, but for those who don't, would you just be willing to share a little bit about your background and how you got here today at uh, COO of TSB Bank? Okay, um, I'll try and do that briefly, right? Not the sort of war and peace version, if you will. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for having me on this uh, show. I did uh, sort of mention to Rick and F that you'll get a lot of words whether you get wisdom or not. Good luck, right? Uh, let's see in another 60 minutes or so. So my journey on, you know, how did I get here so far? I sort of grew up in the south of India in a place called Chennai, family of four. And then did reasonably well at school. Uh, got to one of the better engineering universities in the country. Somehow got out. I have to say that uh, it was not academically my finest four years. Probably my worst four years, if you will. <laughs> my only my only claim to fame, uh, having been at the institute, was to have met my 
then future and now current wife uh, back in sort of 86, 87. That's the biggest thing that I got out of university education. And um, so when you get married early and you got to somehow find a way of feeding your wife and you got shit grades, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a moment. Um, and actually my wife was the earning partner in the early days of our uh, marriage. And my first job, the only requirement I had for my first job was somebody had to give me a job with a home in Mumbai. It was almost mm. impossible. You, you could kill to get a home in Mumbai in those mm. days. I'm talking late 80s. Um, so there were two organizations I remember who used to do it at that time. One was Unilever. Uh, I wasn't a fan of selling soap. No disrespect. It's just not, you know, <laughs> It's not your top passion. <laughs> no, 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 certainly not me. I'm useless at, you know, selling stuff as you'll figure out in a few minutes. And the other organization was uh, Citibank that set up a software company in India mm. back in the day. Uh, they actually gave you a house and paid you and taught you how to sort of write some software. I, I was very lucky. I'm deeply indebted to the people who offered me the job. I probably wasn't worthy of, you know, making it out there. But uh, very interesting, you know, so I was going to be a committed city banker for the rest of my life i was going to die in that company you know they actually gave me a home and a job when i needed both and in that order um but uh, for, for me you know the essence of you know being grateful for somebody having taken a shot at you, mm. you know, it came from home but you know was sort of accentuated uh, based on work one thing led to another i mean people traveling out of india to better uh, opportunities for the family very, very common back in the day. And so we came to the UK in the mid 90s, I continued to work for City. At work, I got exceptionally lucky, right? Um, this is pre the word intellectual property becoming famous back in the mm. sort of late, mid to late 80s. City was running a software platform in all the countries that it operated in a wholesale banking platform. But this was pre internet, pre product, and somehow, you know, stroke of luck rather than I would say spectacular skills. I was in the right place at the right time. And I got a chance to almost be the beachhead for productizing the platform. Mm. And then we were able to sell it commercially outside of city, back into city. City was able to start up a lot of franchises at a very, very low cost, thanks to this platform. And so that was a bit of claim to fame, right? And uh, we, we, this was in the days when uh, we couldn't even connect back into Basecamp in India if all these countries were using the platform. Mm. Trouble, mm. we used fax machines, you know, God knows what it is. Set up a desk in the UK, so I came to run that desk uh, at some point in time, and we never went back as a family. We loved the place. Mm. And because of my knowledge of the platform, I just kept getting breaks, which were way uh, more than, you know, what I was competent to do, and uh, way in advance of, you know, when I would have been ready to do it, I would say. Right? Mm. So I was with City for about 19, 20 years. There comes a point in time, the family's always driven my decision-making at work. It's never been the other way around. There came a point in time when I would have had to relocate to the US to further my career prospects in City. Um, that's when I marked time. I joined Barclays in the UK for about 11 years. <laughs> Did multiple things, too many things, had too much fun in that company. Um, and it was fascinating. I, I had the opportunity to have sort of control over the tech and operations world for the UK retail bank between 2012 and 2019. 
exactly the time when we were trying to get that organization to go from very analog to mm. very digital. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously we made a lot of mistakes, but on balance, we did more things right than wrong and mm. came out at the other end. I thought I'd had uh, enough corporate time. I was actually going to fade away into the sunset to a portfolio career, as everyone says. Hung up my boots with Barclays and that didn't last very long, right? I bumped into Debbie Crosby thanks to an introduction from one of the directors at Barclays. And we got talking and she was looking for a COO and it felt like a small-sized bank, a small to medium-sized bank. Mm. And uh, I thought it'd be a good transformation case study to get it right three years. Um, I'm almost marking year one, still here. Uh, probably two years to go before we say, yeah, we fixed it, right? Mm. Yeah. So that's been like, you know, should I say the five minute version of uh, my life. That's fantastic. Uh, love your experience and how you um, move that way. And I want to I wanna get right into the heart of this around courageous conversations. And that's really the title of this of this episode around how do you actually lead courageous conversations that compel action. So let me, let me give one little preface here and then I'd love to get an, uh, to hear an experience that you may have had along these lines. So there's one of my favorite Irish American poets, his name is David White. And he has this saying, he says, are you having the conversation that you were made for? Are you having the conversation in your life that you were made for? And he says, how you know that is you have the courageous conversations. That's what leads you to have the conversation that you were made for. And how do you know you have the courageous conversations? They're usually the ones that you're afraid to have. So given that, I'd love to ask you, can you give an example of some of the courageous conversations or one that might come to mind that maybe it was like super inconvenient or you had a lot on the line or it's just like talking, speaking truth to power, whatever it might have been that got you to where you are now or has helped you maintain where you are or even innovate where you are. Does any come to mind just to have our audience connect a little more personally with what does it mean to have a courageous conversation and how do you do so, it? Look, I, I think, uh, I don't know if it's courageous or not, but you know, beyond being right place, right time, which I think is super important. And mm -hmm. maybe there are a lot of people who are successful without that, but my story, a lot is right place, right time. I think it's very important to connect yourself to a larger purpose and have a point of view about what you could do given an opportunity, right? Mm. Um, and I think that I'll give you an example of, you know, what happened, you know, to sort of give me a bit more of a jump start with my career. As I said, you know, very briefly, I was one of the few experts on the platform we used to run, Cities Wholesale Bank. Mm -hmm. We buy a bank in Hungary, uh, 97, 98, and they're doing this sort of study on how do you put this bank with, uh, together with city, make it one bank over time. Mm -hmm. uh, normal course of events, I would have produced a report, report would have gone to somebody who was my supervisor, next level up, gone to the guy who actually ran the region. Now it just so happened that this guy shows up on the ground, it was the first acquisition they'd done in that region. The head of Ops and Tech for the region shows up unannounced and says, okay, he didn't use, he didn't exactly say WTF, but he said, what could you do, you know, given that we bought this thing, tell us how you'd go about doing it. And for someone like me who grew up in sort of in Asia, very, very deferential to people in power and authority, mm -hmm. 
for me, that was a moment of truth for me to even be able to articulate a point of view on how might I actually end up doing this, whether I got it right or wrong, doesn't matter. But I was trembling like a leaf internally, but I was projecting a lot of confidence and hopefully some good content. And the reason I say that is, right, these are not big ballsy, it's not like you stand like front of the queue and go to war and say, rah, you know, I'm courageous. These are moments when you actually have a belief, have a faith system, have a point of view, and you have the ability to express that point of view in a way that's compelling for someone to actually say, yeah, you know what, that story makes sense. I'm going to actually back this into the show. A lot of your everyday life is based on those kind of transactions rather than, you know, the one spectacular aha moment is at least my, my lesson learned in my life. And so I felt, you know, and so this guy, you know, obviously he didn't wait for the report to be written. He said, okay, take this youngster, put him on the management team for tech for the region. And, you know, like once you get a break, you have to do, you have to do your end. You have to continue to work hard and produce the results. Sure. But I just felt, I, I had more than one of those moments in my career. And it could have been someone else and probably far more capable people than me in the organization. I just happened to be there. But apart from being there, you know, there was a, a little bit of content to actually talk about a point of view. So that's, mm. you know, one example of, you know, what happened in my life. Mm. I've, got, I've got a follow-on question which relates to culture. I do believe that culture has a big role to play. I, I'm stepping outside of corporate culture. Whilst that's extremely important, we'll come to that in a second. I think the culture you're from, so you talked about the fact that you came from a culture where authority was your relationship with the boss or, you know, um, the respect for authority, the respect for the, the seniority of a person. And if they get older and God forbid, they've got gray hair even more so. And there's been a lot talked about in past sessions that we've run around stress and anxiety, decision-making, intuition, all of these things that we've been talking about quite regularly and folks who follow our shows will know that. Um, t tell us a little bit about what, um, made you step out of that zone where maybe nine out of ten people in your position would have followed the rules of the game and said, well, actually, I've got a senior person. Yes, sir, two bags full, sir. But you decided to have the courageous conversation. Why is that? And what, what compelled you to do so? Um, it'd be great to get your view on that. So I think there are, there are two parts to the story, right? Growing up, I grew up in a large joint family in India, right? And the system, believe it or not, uh, in those days was you were told what you had to do and what you could and couldn't do, at least the way I grew up in, in my home. And you might have had a point of view, but no one was interested, really, at least the people who were calling the shots. So like my dad or my mom or even my grandmom, they basically made the, made the calls about what one would end up doing on the journey. And Look, this was pre-internet, right? So wisdom actually got passed down in that fashion, right? So it was an acceptable sort of method by which, um, you know, you were sort of helped along uh, uh, your journey of life. When you actually, when, when, when I moved over to the UK, in the early days, it was a bit of a struggle to actually speak your mind until you were sort of drawn into the conversation, right? And I think... Mm -hmm. I was very blessed with the kind of people who actually managed me, must have been a struggle, that they actually took the time and the effort 
to integrate me into someone who'd grown up and worked in a largely sort of Asian culture to come and integrate them into a, a very Western way of, you know, working. Like, you know, even a stupid thing like when I grew up, if I spoke to an elder male in India, always used to be uncle. It was never by name. Mm-hmm. We don't do that in the West. It's not because we disrespect people, you know, uh, any differently. It's just the way the system works, right? And of course, you've got to be curious enough to watch, learn, and make your moves because you're living in a sort of new environment and the rules are definitely different. But I'd say I was very fortunate to find the right managers. I mean, they gave me, they cut me slack and they actually integrated me really well. Um, into sort of uh, ways of working. So progressively it became easier and easier. And Mm. even at a very, very deep personal level, me, the individual, so while I might sound reasonably eloquent right now, if you roll the clock back 10 years, I was actually monosyllables, right? Or maybe 10, 12 years. I was much more comfortable monosyllables rather than, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of wax eloquent. And, and, And that part of me was largely because I learned that, you know, for most of my life in the early sort of 20 years, it was probably head over heart. And when I got the chance to manage operations teams, which were not sort of the best paid teams on planet earth and where you couldn't lead only through sort of logic and rationale is when one learned to sort of let go and Mm. share any inhibitions about would I look dumb? Would I look stupid? You know, what will people think of me? And I think the day I stopped Mm. worrying about what will people think of me, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, probably a massive shift in you know how I ran myself and what people thought of me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the key ingredients that you just said is when I stop giving energy to everyone else's authority, I can actually step into my self-authority in a different way. And I'm not fighting and battling everyone else and doing PR campaigning all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right? That sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah, we all do it, right? <laughs> On some level. Um, yeah, yeah. So, Here's my question for you. I want to shift this conversation more to the environmental space and the social impact uh, part of our show. And so when we talk about courageous conversations, I know you've been in the banking world for a long time and seeing several different in, you know, industries, uh, how things work behind the scenes. Let me ask you this. What do you think are the courageous conversations that need to happen right now uh, within organizations, within the boardrooms? when we talk about this balance of profitability as well as ethics and having a environmental impact and being conscious of, you know, taking care of the place we live and not just being short-sighted on incentives and bonuses. How, how do we, what are the, what are the courageous conversations we need to have there in your opinion? So I think, look, um, increasingly what is much more apparent now more than ever before is that organizations have to meet a purpose statement. If they have no purpose as to why they should be around and what bad thing happens to society if they're not around, then you can more or less put a lot of money that these organizations are not gonna be around on an enduring basis. Mm-hmm. And so if you want your organization to be around on an enduring basis, and everyone can give you the stats on, you know, S&P 500, how many firms have been there for the last X, you know, decades, right? There are very, very few of those. It's, it's very clear. And this is, you know, thankfully also a very millennial way of thinking about personal purpose and, you know, what are you actually doing for where you're living? Right. And I think it's come at a very opportune time 
for boards, I would say that there's a massive learning process that the boards are, you know, are going through at this point in time on how do you move away from risk and top line, bottom line, return on equity kind of measures uh -huh. to actually, this is how we are helping change the way the world operates, mm. or this is how we are actually helping people who change the way the world operates. Those conversations are very, very nascent. I mean, bear in mind that for many, many years now, we've all grown up using plastic, right? It's only in the last sort of five years that the conversation has accelerated around, this is actually a bad thing. And we see the visual impact on oceans and seas and everything of what happens with waste, which is dumped indiscriminately. So we've not had a huge body of knowledge and learning over like hundreds of years for us to somehow magic, you know, a good set of answers to a problem that's been building up over time, which we now started acknowledging, right? I think, mm -hmm. the, so it's, it's still, I would say it's still a ways off. So I think there's a lot of good intent and mm -hmm. most human beings, right? They want to do the right thing. Very, very few want to actually, you know, somehow get to, you know, wherever they want to get to by any method. Mm -hmm. But I think people feel very uninformed to have the conversation, right? So I think I, I go back to sort of a lot of it is if we sort of inform and dare I say educate people, then the outcomes will be the right outcomes. If mm -hmm. you don't and you start from a very vacuous corporate, you know, let's make the, let's be eco-friendly and let's sort of, you know, reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. That sort of ends up ultimately trivializing what's a very important sort of uh, conversation for all of us. We had, um, Suresh, we, we were having a discussion with an executive from a large insurance company a while back, a straight talking chap, no pun intended, um, but he, he said something quite um, pertinent in relation to what you're saying. We were talking about the personality of leaders and they all come together and they sit on a board of a company, right? And the, um, inclination or the drive to try and change and adapt and do these great things which is let's let's look beyond the shareholders for a moment they're important of course but let's look at the impact we're going to make on society and let's tie this back into a, a individual and or company sense of purpose which by the way we've been talking about for decades all the books in, in the mbas have been talking about organizational behavior you know mission purpose why you know the or vision all that sort of good stuff i think we're beyond that now we're i think we're moving to the more human side and it's it sounds silly for me to say that because we were never ai but it's funny how we say human-centered design or uh, it's he's a very human kind of guy very authentic well sure we're human beings for christ's sake and i think for a long time organizations have been operating like military units mm -hmm. in such a prescriptive way shareholder value uh, all the metrics roi you know top line bottom line that's been the conversation style for a long period and mm -hmm. heck we don't even need ai we already behave like ai as robots ourselves. And I think this pandemic has helped us to realize that this problem, because it's global at the same time, is it has given us an opportunity to be a little bit, little bit more ourselves, uh, human selves, to, to care about the people around us, our family, society, people we employ, who we have great personal relationships with. And uh, we buy into that. And I think both Rick and I are massively excited and stimulated by that. The problem is this, the, the chap we were chatting to who's, who's a leader, he said, listen, mate, he said, what you guys need to understand is that there is a system in a company. Not every company is the same, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but large companies have a system. They have either rigidity, old school leaders 
traditional leaders, sometimes they're all white male uh, from a certain class, that's quite common, that has groupthink, of course, associated with it. And the other is this concept of budgeting and planning, big problem, because you fudge it. And the second one is salaries and incentives. And so unless we re-examine those enablers or disablers, depending on how they're helping you, the, the mindset of the employees, the workforce, and the leadership is not going to change. Now, you joined, and you don't have to comment on the company you're with or, or, uh, or even the past one, but you know, you've walked in to run operations in this very large organization, and you're transforming. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, and the audience is listening very carefully. We've got a pretty packed show, by the way, which is great to see as well. But I'm sure people are from executive roles on this call right now. What would you say to someone who is in an environment where they feel somewhat frustrated? They know that the pathway is there, but the leader who is the senior leader maybe above them just doesn't get it. Because that, that's now the courageous conversation. Maybe your job's on the line if you have that courageous conversation. What would you do if you were in a situation like that? So look, I think the, one of the advantages we have these days is that to reach the organization, you don't need the hierarchy. Right? And you can have rounded conversations, whether your firm uses Yammer or you use email, whatever method of communication you use, it was no longer the person to person and up the chain kind of comps model that exists, right. right? So pick a model that works for you. It doesn't have to be confrontational. It can be complementary. as in you bump into people in a sort of uh, water cooler, you, you have the ability to go anonymous, I mean, there are a hundred ways of actually getting your message out there to somebody who's going to listen in the organization. And what's happened is, right, I'll tell you, example, banking, right? This is 30 years for me in banking. But in the last 10 years, both because of what the regulators have done, as well as because of how organizations have woken up, in banking, the focus on complaints and why are customers complaining and how did you inconvenience them? You know, your mobile platform wasn't there. You charged them a dumb fee. That conversation has become center stage and management is actually measured equally on that as much as, you know, the financials. Ten years mm. back, mm. the conversation was well and truly around what was the quarter like? Did you book your numbers? Get on to the next quarter, right? So, I look, I think so, and 10 years is not a lot in the development of, you know, thinking across mm. an entire industry, across an entire country, I would say, right? There were, there were other industries which were doing this far better, you know, far before banking, but I'm just giving you an example from the, the industry that I've been in. So an individual's voice, their ability to actually put it out there, whether it's a TikTok video or YouTube, I mean, just there's like a hundred ways of actually doing this without actually pissing off your you know, line manager, assuming he or she is a pain in the backside. Um, that I don't think is the, is the gating factor. It's really, do you have it in you to rally a bunch of people around the cause? Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, in our own organization, right? So I happen to chair our sort of BAME network, right? From a, a diversity and inclusion perspective the largest voice in that network is not top down the guy called ricky benjamin he's the largest voice in the network 
and because you know he was speaking about personal experiences windrush generation you know which is in his direct you know line and those people are much more natural leaders in this area mm-hmm. and they're not waiting they're not waiting for a pat on the back they've got a story they've got the courage to tell the story yeah. i think everyone's got to find their courage to tell the story and if the audience is not you know their line manager there's another audience they got to go and find their audience is how i sort of put it yeah beautifully put mm-hmm. nicely put i i sorry gone break you were saying um yeah i'm going to take this in a slightly different place around let's look at the compelling action side of this episode mm-hmm. um and and here's what i want to ask you suresh is um even as you know coo obviously you you have your direct reports they have their direct reports etc cetera, etc cetera. this is one of the things i find most interesting is how do you have that those feedback moments how do you have those courageous conversations with people on your team that actually compel action that get them to shift behavior that get them to change something how do you do that like what if you could just kind of show us the backstage a little bit about what is your perspective around how do you have those feedback moments around accountability or when something's not going like you're wanting to see or you know that they can be better and you know you can challenge them to greatness how do you do that that in a way that actually compels action that you've seen work so i think there are there are sort of let me try and answer this in two broad themes right um there's theme one which is being very data driven okay mm-hmm. which takes almost all the emotion out of the process mm. that's that's kind of the style that i grew up with mm-hmm. you know until until let's say t minus 10 12 years ago mm-hmm. and in that model what i've tried to do is a lot of a lot of what we've ended up doing in many many industries is to focus on the thing that went wrong and fix it and so that almost creates a death spiral conversation because you're always looking for the things that went wrong or the things that could go wrong that you're not focused on the 99 things out of 100 that are actually going right mm-hmm. so that's and the reason i say that is first of all people should feel very confident about having a conversation without fear right once you've got that as a, a leader then you're mm-hmm. a performance drive and the way you do that is if you're only focused on fixing stuff that's broken you're not going to get energy back from your people because they're not able to have any positive conversation with you as a leader mm. on the hundreds of things that they did right and guaranteed guaranteed there's always going to be lipstick on a pig there are going to be cases where you know things weren't as rara as people make them out to be but you'd rather have that than not in my mm. opinion right it creates a lot more positive stories than negative stories that i think is you know um aspect number 1 i think the emotional side which mm-hmm. is kind of you know how do you connect with people a lot of it i find rick is by getting out there meeting people virtually or physically making sure that you demystify yourself as a leader Mm. and take away any of the fear right you know whether you're a leader or not every, you know you live in london everyone takes the train you know everyone goes and grabs a bite at a crap product costa or whatever the hell that comes so once you sort of get people into the zone that you know there's no superior human being it's just someone who's had a different set of experiences who's considered competent enough to be in a seat 
then I think the conversations are always, you know, much more real. And you know, you, you've got to back it up with non-formal ways of interacting with people, you know, a social mm-hmm. event, uh, the CRS initiative. These are all good ways of actually making sure people understand you're real. And, you know, the good thing is you can't fake being real, right? I mean, people are smart, <laughs> enough, to, people are smart enough to find you out in five minutes. Yeah. And so if you're not if you're not real, then one would suggest that's where the work has to be. Not yeah. in, you know, that's the first courageous conversation to have. Like, mm. You know, what I hear from you there is the first courageous conversation is actually with yourself. It's between you and you. And, you know, how do you, how do you become more uh, visible, more human, more transparent, um, more, more authentic um, in, in a way that your team can really feel and trust your credibility and where you're coming from and not trying to just fake it or use some authority um, positioning to muscle your way through something, which usually can have a short-term win, but a long-term uh, backfire when that, when that happens again and again is what I've seen. Um, so I really appreciate that piece, right? That courageous conversation has to start between me and me first. Mm. You know, am I honest with myself? Am I earning that reputation with myself? Am I following through and doing what I say? Um, and, and my modeling, what I'm asking of my team as well, which I know is a big part of your philosophy. It's not just about talking about it, but are you doing it yourself? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the other thing, Rick, is, um, I, and I don't know what your view on this is, Suresh. So, you know, we, we've also been talking about trigger events quite a bit. So trigger events, not just macro events like the pandemic, they have a knock-on effect on, on many things. But I'm, I'm also referring to life-changing trigger events. You know, during this very difficult time, unfortunately, uh, people have not only had the condition or the, uh, the, the illness and got through it, but then many who haven't gone uh, managed to survive, you know, family, friends, uncles and aunts, grandmothers, um, and people unfortunately have lost a lot of the, their family. And, uh, you know, I, you will, we'll all know someone who unfortunately has suffered that trauma. And so trauma has, has also, uh, it's got its downsides, of course, but trauma has also awakened uh, a, a new self. It's almost like a sense of empathy has gone up quite significantly, where you've been through a very difficult situation. And I'm taking a very crude example, and this is not by any means how line managers work, but let's imagine you have a line manager who's not really um, one you're fond of, or you don't have the best relationship, and you feel that line manager is a little bit more sort of micromanaging or is focused on activities rather than, you know, just get it done, mate, at the end of the day kind of approach to, to, to work. And you felt that the empathy or the level of compassion wasn't really there. It was missing. Mm-hmm. You know, it happens a lot, right? Of course. And we all evolve. But I find that trigger events or trauma events do help you have the you and you conversation, Rick. And so did any of that happen with you? Because you talked about, oh, you know, I was fortunate to have the best bosses and line managers. But is, was it as rosy or did, were there certain events in your life that no, no, made you reconsider? No, no, no. I mean, um, what was this? 2010, when I was in Barclays, Barclays, we used to reorganize ourselves every two years back in the day, right? Um, and so we went from config A to config B, senior management disappears. And um, so my new line manager who shows up in November of 2010, she and I just can't see eye to eye in less than six months' time, right? And so it was my way, highway, and I was like, okay, highway sounds better than my way, right? And I was, you know, <laughs> I was, 
I was about to sort of say goodbye to the organization and move on. And accidentally, I bumped into, you know, somebody who's almost like an older brother to me, Ashok, you know, Maswani, who's like uh, yeah. now running a lot of uh, retail businesses for Barclays. He'd just been appointed CEO for Barclays in Africa. And he said, why don't you come and work with me? First of all, you know, and I was like, you know what? The only thing I know about retail banking is I know how to stick my card in and get money out of an ATM. Everything I've done is, you know, different part of banking. Why the hell are you, you know, even employing me? He said, no, no, let's have fun. You know, it's, it's uh, Africa. It's, you know, great set of people and countries. At that stage, I'd not even done any management of folks in operations. Mm. Mm. None whatsoever, right? Wow. So within 12 months, I go from never having worked in the retail bank to running retail bank tech, admittedly a smaller part of Barclays at that time. And then within 12 months, running operations. And within 12 months, Ashok moves to the UK. And, you know, I sort of go along with Ashok to help run uh, that part of the organization. So in a terrible moment, right, once again, you know, I just consider myself very fortunate, right place, right time. It's not like, you know, big brain or any of those great things. You do get opportunities and it's so easy to walk past the opportunity and say, you know what, I'm not trained in retail banking. Mm -hmm. I've never done an op. You, know, you can come up with a hundred reasons why it shouldn't be you. Yeah. You can find, you can find the sort of strength to say, you know what, for a good reason I've been found. How the hell am I going to actually make it happen? And I think I have more examples, you know, where that came from. It was not all rosy, rosy, but you know, like if in a in a corporate life of about 35, 40 years, you're lucky if you had like 20 outstanding years, you know, yeah, 10 right. ones and 10 absolute bum ones, right? If that's yeah. the normal curve. So, you know, you, you, you do, you know, you do have to roll with it and uh, you've got to have a great amount of resilience to get yeah. through right? um, these situations, you know, mm. and that's what uh, every person, you know, whichever sports person you take a look at, right? Any sort of arena of sports, all of these sports people have had lousy years in yeah. a stellar career, right? And that's true for all of us, right? I mean, we are after all sort of, average job job blogs who you know does an average job mm -hmm. you know you make a really good point right there and i think this is so key for the listeners and the audience to hear this right now and by the way if you want to ask any questions uh, wherever you might be tuning into on facebook youtube etc please send in your questions and we'll make sure to get those to suresh in these last 20 minutes here but what you're having me think about suresh is one of the things that gets in the way of compelling action or any action in general is the inner critic it's that, right? Like what you were just talking about where, how often do we sabotage ourselves? How often do we get in our own way? Um, or, or there's opportunities we doubt, we doubt our capacity, even we've never been in that situation before. Do we mm -hmm. still have whatever that takes to give it a go, to give it our best shot, even if we've never had that? And so I just appreciate how you have done that several times. And it's so encouraging for the audience and people out there, I'm sure to hear, yeah, how do they, you know, really, take that next step, even if their doubts are starting to creep up, how do they work with that inner critic and still go for it, you know, and take action? Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, I want to switch the conversation a little bit towards um, the, the human side, you know, as, as part of our exploring transformation piece, the human digital social, 
uh, the digital is, is, is something that you've been doing for a number of years, and we'll come to that shortly. The human side is super important because we're, we're in that space. And one specific part of the human side is this kind of um, space around uh, anxiety, stress, panic. And we talk a lot about, you know, Rick often talks about the panic zone, the learning zone, and the... Um, Com the comfort the zone. The comfort zone, of course. And um, we're seeing an interesting, we did a couple of polls a few sessions ago. And of course, we're, it's nice to see that people are moving away from the panic zone, getting closer to the learning zone, which is right in the middle, which is all about, you know, human development. It's about new skills. It's about saying no to things that have held you back. It's about managing fears. It's about saying no to bad relationships and saying yes to things that would help you uh, develop and elevate. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. And so tell us a little bit about uh, individuals and team members or this, you know, whether you want to take a leadership stance on it, you want to take a family stance on it, whatever it may be. How, how do you, what's the advice or the, the viewpoint you're going to share with the, the listeners around, let's say for a moment that they're in the panic zone, you know, someone's in an executive role, has been doing that for 25 years. They realize they're going to lose their job for whatever reason, the bank goes down, company goes down, or they're no longer fit for purpose. And they've been pretty comfortable, comfort zone for a long while. And they've hadn't, they haven't really upgraded their skills. They're not on advisory boards. They've never thought that they've required it. Um, and they felt that, okay, this is good, steady life. It's nice, it's, it's chilled. And suddenly this bolt of lightning has hit them in the form of the pandemic. And of course, there's this concern about the unemployment crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So um, at that point you have, you know, you go into this, um, uh, this zone of, it's like stasis to some extent, or you're at, you become apathetic or even negative or cynical about what's going on in the world. You start scapegoating or blaming. Uh, people or institutions or governments or your manager for that matter. You're like, you put me in this situation. Um, you know, that sort of mindset. What what would you say from a human transformation side, uh, do you see as being the pathways forward? What, where's that, you know, that where's that silver lining coming from? And how do you coach your people to say, listen, uh, you, you had these skills yesterday, you need to build new skills and it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. Um, what sort of a conversation should one have? And I, I'm saying it, so the, the hat I'm wearing is, um, from, from the audience, is someone who is an executive leader but manages people. And they've started to realize they themselves may be out of date. Uh, so what, how are they going to coach the team? So just, I would love your perspective on that because it's kind of real and it's happening but it's not being talked about. No, no, it's very real, right? I mean... On the one hand, you know, we say tech and, you know, how it transforms the way we live and what we can do from wherever we are. On the other hand, it does, therefore, put paid to things that we've done for many, many years and automates that, you know, in addition, right? So my favorite example that I use is, you know, if you, you know, if you look at the sort of world that I, um, I work in, there's a part of the world which is what you call the world of operations, which is making sure you're completing customer transactions. There's a part of the world that is, let's say, tech, which is making sure that customers can do it themselves, you know, to put it truly, right? Yeah. You know, the organization that's actually making sure that you're completing customer transactions, you know that, you know, more and more, we're all investing so customers can do it themselves. It's just the way of the world, right? You can't run an Apple store by sort of visiting everyone at their home. It's just not practical, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you do as a leader? Because you know that you can't guarantee employment. You can't. 
But as a leader, you can guarantee employability. That is mm. enormous. And therefore, the my favorite example is right. If you went into most organizations, take banks. You know, I I do understand them. And you talk to folks in ops ten years ago. You say, you know what? Got to write an Excel macro. An Excel macro, and I might be exaggerating a touch, but an Excel macro ten years ago was written by the tech department, unless you were in the trading business and you wrote your macros yourself. Right. Today, no one actually goes to the tech department for an Excel macro because that's just become a core skill that you need to have in the work that you do. And so, what we are trying to do for you know our colleagues in ops, still very early days, is to say, look, what are your tools that you need to be a specialist in? So you can progressively automate a lot more of your work, so you actually stay relevant in terms of skills. And how do we actually do that for a large population of our folks, so that they can then end up helping our customers do more things, rather than you know do the same things but you know faster and faster, right? And that's a challenge that's staring at us. But remember, as much as the skills that we need to acquire are Quite different from the ones that we've all grown up with. Mm. Yeah, the ability to acquire them is much different than it was, you know, 20 years ago as well. You don't have to go to university to learn. You can sign up on Coursera. There's, you know, a shitload of stuff that you can actually mm. get done in mm. your own time, at your own convenience. So, as much as you know, there's the threat. There's also the opportunity, and I would, I would encourage leaders to focus on the opportunity. See, because you you actually have to ask yourself whether you're the kind of person that you want to spend time with yourself. Yeah. And you know, therefore, if you focus on the sort of um, the half full, half empty, you know, on the negative aspects of what's not working for you, my only submission is that you're losing energy and you're not focusing mm. on the way forward. That's probably you know where you've got to spend more of your time. Mm. You know, um, I want to focus a little more on this pandemic moment that we're having right now for a second here. And when I think of the COO role, one of the things I think about is having that right balance of systems and people, like in a very broad brushstroke. Um, how do I always listen for the right balance of the two, right? And so, what are you seeing needs to change, or what's being exposed in this pandemic climate around technology, systems, working remotely, and yet being more connected than ever, and having that empathy piece. What are you seeing is required for leaders and managers now, given the state of the world? So, look, I think we've all had to make our own personal transformations, and as a collective, you know, a collective transformation as well. I remember, you know, there were a reasonable number of meetings for which I used to carry paper, right? Mm -hmm. I've not printed anything in the last four months now, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot right. of my colleagues around the sort of executive table haven't done that either. Um, obviously, we haven't been able to go into an office building whatsoever. This is true for the world. And I was a manager who preferred to have my people come into the office. Right? That was just my predisposition. Mm -hmm. Now I'm completely easy, right? And I don't. I wouldn't say I have all the methods to actually look at outcomes versus inputs, because you know that's kind of you know what your big shift is as an organizational mm -hmm. leader. But. Because you don't have a choice, we've all learned how to operate in this model, right? Yes. I think this is. Um, but I think the human element is just fabulous, right? I think, look, many a time I have colleagues who are in meetings, 
and suddenly the kids are actually, you know, in the room, participating in the meeting, if you will, right? We never had that level of a personal yeah. touch with our colleagues, right? Uh -huh. You go to the bar and have a drink or two. Yeah. But this is this is real, right? This is them as a parent. It doesn't mm, get more real than right. that. Mm -hmm. Trying to actually have a work conversation at the same time. I really cherish those moments, right? I, yeah. I think that's what makes it exceptionally real mm -hmm. to operate yeah. in this more. And we did a survey in the organization. I mean, I'm speaking for one organization, right? Except for about 15 people, the rest of the company just loves working from home. Most people felt they can service customers far better than actually taking the train to get into London and then, mm. you know, getting back home, right? So it's fascinating how in four months, perspectives have changed uh, mm. for all of us. Mm. It's we, we just have to be as people and as companies, we have to accept that Darwin's philosophy does work here to some extent, that this ability to adapt to situations is way better than saying, well, no, it's been working for 50 years this way. How dare you change it? And um, and look at look at what's happened. I mean, I, you know, having built an AI company myself five years now in entrepreneurship for the first time in, in our entire timing is everything in our entire journey, customers or clients are coming to us because the events industry is in the gutter or in the freezer, speaking, saying, speaking politely about it. And you're not able to meet people. You need to use automation, machines, tools to be able to connect with one another and understand markets. You're not changing your decision process. You still have to make decisions. So, and now you're forced to do it. It's a little bit like, you know, going to gym, going to the gym and uh, trying to do it yourself. And, you know, that's how you, I've been going to the gym for 10 years, but I've lost no weight. And then suddenly you have this damn trainer who's horrible, but, you know, has forced you into a regime or a routine that's made you fit again. And COVID has been that. It's been horrible <laughs> for a lot of people. It's like, oh no, for the last 20 years, I've been trying to avoid this damn digital thing. And suddenly mm -hmm. it's here. But look, look how we've adjusted. Look how we've adjusted. Mm -hmm. um, it's just wonderful. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, Suresh, the, the, the one thing, one final slightly controversial thing I want to touch on before we sort of close off and, and, and questions come in, if you don't mind, Rick, is, um, and I don't really like to talk about it because I'm, I don't like to be put into buckets or boxes. And by the way, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of BAME. I don't like categorization. Mm. I think it perpetuates divide. But that aside, that's it's the way it is. Uh, tell me a little bit about, um, and I find this fascinating, and I'll speak openly with you. It's, you know, recently Rishi Sunak, who's our chancellor in, in the UK, Rick, as you know, he, there was an article that came out where he said, well, actually, the banknotes in the country, we need to have a bit of a bane feel to it. We need to put in people from different backgrounds who've contributed to the, the history of the country, whether it's the Gurkha soldier or it's someone in healthcare or medicine or whatever. And I think that's fantastic. But what was playing in my mind is I'd rather have, as opposed to the B that is the banknotes and our faces on it, I'd rather have people in boardrooms. And so I, I, I don't come across a lot of people in the UK, at least, who are of ethnic descent, who sit on, um, in the boardroom. I do come across leaders, of course, but you don't often find people from ethnic backgrounds in the boardroom. And I speak uh, frankly and openly about it, and I, I, and I can, which is great because I don't work for a corporate anymore. But um, tell me what you think about that, Suresh. Um, and tell, tell, give us your view on what you think we should be doing differently. Uh, and, I, and my benchmark here, by the way, is the United States. We were talking about this earlier on. I'm absolutely enamored by, it's got its downsides, of course, but I'm enamored by how, how the United States has embraced 
uh, diversity and um, people from different backgrounds. It's got its downsides, obviously, because of the, yeah. you know, the BLM movement has has stemmed from there for, for good reason. But if you look at, you know, Sundar Pachai, Google, um, or Alphabet, or you look at uh, Satya Nadella, Microsoft, and all of the other names we've talked about, you know, Shantanu and Adobe and so on, uh, there is... Uh, there's much more diversity at boardroom level and CEO level. What do you think if you had a if you had a wand, magic wand, or a Harry Potter wand, which one of our our friends at Legal and General, the CIO, talks about Harry po Harry Potter problems? What would you do with your wand if you had a moment, and how would you change things around um, for the betterment of society? So look, I think uh, the big the big area of focus, right? And I don't know, at least for those of you who are in the UK and follow cricket, hopefully you caught up on the Michael Holding interview from a few weeks ago. Right? Yeah. I'm totally in his camp that, you know, if you don't educate, mm. then you're not going to solve this problem, you know? And and I, I take your point, half, right? I think all of us have seen corporate bullshit, you know, lipstick on a pig. It's the environment one day with a bunch of metrics. It's like, you know, ethnicity and diversity another day with a, with a range of metrics. And there are a lot of people who are playing the game but if you want to transform society and you transform look I, I think some of the names you called out they are sort of specialists in a particular type of industry right um but if you want that to be a sort of a change across society there is no way you're going to get there unless you actually educate people starting early on because these things these things actually, you know, these are not even conscious after a point in time. It's just the way you've grown up and just the way you think, right? And it's not meant with malice by different pockets of people versus, you know, one another. But if you don't fix it structurally, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to do it on an enduring basis. So I think both methods are okay, right? And to some extent, you know, first of all, you've got to keep shouting about a problem so everybody listens and says, hey, BAME is a problem. And that's just a nice way of, you know, mm. focusing on a particular class of people. And it used to be, it still is, it has to be, you know, gender diversity. But at least it's very easy to measure that. And organizations have gotten into the rhythm of, you know, uh, measurement. But with BAME, and particularly with BLM, the per capita opportunity space is much lower than what's happening with some of the other segments. And therefore, it's important we talk about it. And hopefully in 20 years, you don't talk about this because there's another problem to talk about, right? Or, yeah. And if you if you don't look at the sequence, gender diversity, LGBTQ+, right? These are the first two caps of the rank. But those aren't the only two, right? You've got mm. to keep looking at it. It's a layered issue. Mm. So, so it'll take time. Uh, I don't think there's any magic wand. You'll have some exemplars and people will follow the exemplars. I mean, think about Obama in the US. My God. I mean, look, I'm not saying I'm a fan of his politics or not. I'm just saying the fact that, you know, he could actually make it to the top job in the country. Yeah. It's amazing, right? I mean, yep. it's yeah. just amazing. So I'll leave it there. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and what's exciting, you don't know this yet, but we're going to be getting into diversity and inclusion and and why diversity has failed according to our next two guests next week. So we're going to go far deeper into this very conversation. Um, and one of them's from the UK, one's from Canada. Uh, but we're going to have a great conversation to for those of you listening in the audience who want to go deeper in this particular topic. But I think it's so important, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Af. Um, <clears throat> one, one last question I have here is just... Um, when you think about future leaders, when you think about the next gen, how would you coach them? 
around those courageous conversations? How do they need to have them with themselves? How do they need to have them with their teams? Uh, what would you say to the next generation seeing where things are moving in the corporate space and beyond? So look, I, I would I would focus on a couple of qualities. I mean, you can write a book, right? And much smarter people than me have a point of view on this. But my my two takeaways, right? Having done a little bit of thinking, particularly in the last sort of two, three years is you gotta you gotta remind people that they need to care. Hmm. You've got to care about yourself, what's around you, where you live, what happens off it, how was it before you arrived, how will it be after you leave. You've got to care. Hmm. And I think you've got to be exceptionally resilient because it's, uh, you know, nothing ever goes to plan, right? Otherwise, life would be boring. You know, you plan hmm. it and it's like a Microsoft project thing, it's a Gantt chart. So, you know, and and therefore, it's very important that, you know, you have the resilience to take the knocks and lift yourself up and get up and keep going. And I would, I would, it's almost like, you know, which sport would you like your kid to play? And I think uh, for years, I thought it's got to be cricket or baseball or whatever the hell, until you finally realize you've got to teach the kid to run. And one day, they'll find out the right sport they want to play. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the same okay. thing, right? So those are the two things that stand out to me. Hmm. That's fantastic. Superb. Fantastic. Um, after you have any last closing comments on your No, I, I think, you know, firstly, thank you for taking this call. You were on, on holiday and uh, that's, that's, you know, great commitment to, to helping people as well, of course, Suresh. So thanks for that. I, I've really found this discussion very uh, meaningful and I think really re you know, respect the fact that you were honest and open and candid as you are. And we did touch on actually a whole host of very important topics right the way from digital innovation to boardroom decision making to diversity mm -hmm. to um you know the the fact that anxiety stress mental well-being in, in fact with, without calling it that is a critical part of a better future tomorrow for, for us as people mm -hmm. our families and and the people we work with we talked about culture as well we we wove in culture and cultural biases and conscious and subconscious and we talked about your personal story uh, suresh and um, thank you for being, uh, you know, a noble, supportive individual. We we will remember that, and uh, the replay is going to be out. So I think a lot of people will jump on the replay. And um, yeah, I just want to say I'm deeply grateful. Thank you, and thank you being, for being a friend, and being a fantastic leader in in a in a bank that many of us use. So um, we're we're looking forward all, to the transformation of, you, of that. <laughs> all, of you should, all of you should use us. Anyway, hey, thank you so much for having me, um, yeah. and thank you for spending an hour, you know, hearing me out. Thank you. Yes, yeah, Suresh, really, uh, really an honor to be with you. Thank you again for taking time out of your holiday. And how can people find out about you if they want to learn more about uh, anything, any initiatives that you're up to, et cetera? Where can they find out? Shoot, you know, either LinkedIn or Facebook, right? Okay. So, so go to your LinkedIn or your Facebook page would be best. Yes, sir. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and just the last note is next week, uh, as mentioned, we're going to be having this very riveting conversation around di why diversity has actually failed. What does that mean? What's next? With two leading experts on diversity and inclusion, Casey and Seema. So very excited to have you join us next week for this incredible topic. Thank you all for tuning in to Straight Talk Live. Um, and again, Suresh, thank you for your expertise, your wisdom, your good looks, your charm, and your stories. Until next time. Thank you.